You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello and welcome to our second discussion episode. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm joined in the studio by Dr. John Knott. He's a research fellow at the Institute for Superconductive and Electronic Materials, and has a focus in energy storage, which is poignant because on today's podcast, that's exactly what we're going to be discussing, uh, new and emerging energy storage technologies. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on, Leo. Excited to be here. Wonderful. So can we talk a little bit first about your own research and how you're in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So I work at the University of Wollongong at the moment, um, and we're working on a project to develop sodium ion batteries for use in residential and uh, sort of light commercial energy storage applications, looking at uh, yeah, putting them into, into the grid uh, and helping people build their resilience and really take charge of their uh, energy generation, consumption and storage. So most people are probably familiar with the kind of batteries that are in our phones and, and that are in the Tesla vehicles now, which is a lithium-ion battery. Um, how, how are yours different? Absolutely. So lithium-ion batteries are the 800-pound the gorilla in the battery space. So uh, although lead-acid batteries are still um, the biggest by um, sort of uh, amount of batteries or the amount of energy stored, because uh, you know, a lot of people don't think that they've got lead-acid batteries in their cars, lead-acid batteries in... Um, you know the fire escape lighting all those sorts of things there's lots and lots and lots of different applications where lead acid batteries are still actually the the uh, the go-to technology but lithium-ion batteries are taking over for as you say things like phones cars uh, the biggest battery in the world the um, the tesla battery down in south australia is based on lithium-ion battery technology Uh, so that's a really exciting technology that's um, that's found in the last sort of 10-15 years a real um, foothold in um, energy storage applications from very, very low, um, very, very small scale to very, very large scale as well. So <clears throat> our sodium ion battery technology is very similar to that. Um, so instead of using lithium ions to shuttle back and forth and char- during the charge and discharge of the batteries, we're using sodium ions instead. And there's a number of reasons that uh, that you know, could be the next real breakthrough in terms of uh, energy storage technologies, one of them being that the sodium ion battery technology, the, the input materials, um, have the potential to be a lot cheaper uh, than the lithium uh, input materials, the raw materials, and a lot more abundant as well. So that's one of the real um, you know, potential upsides that we've got there with the sodium ion battery technology. Yeah, a lot of people are projecting forward in the, the lithium market, and not just lithium as a material, but you know the counter-electrodes like cobalt and nickel, graphenes. Uh, there's all these other components in lithium-ion batteries that are looking like the supply chains are going to be constrained for producing the kinds of levels of batteries we need uh, for the the revolution that Tesla and other companies are proposing. Absolutely. I mean, there's, um, you know, so the lithium-ion batteries, uh, I think Elon Musk, um, you know, said something along the lines of lithium is just sort of the sprinkling baking bits on top. Lithium-ion batteries have lots more materials in them that um, are either harder or um, perhaps more environmentally difficult to to work into the batteries. So things like cobalt, a lot of the... um, I think about 50% of the world's cobalt comes from uh, Africa, from you know, a very small area in Africa that has some issues around um, ethical mining practices. Um, so there's, you know, there's issues with, with that that goes into the lithium-ion batteries. Uh, nickel is quite uh, difficult and toxic to mine. Um, so you know, there's, there's lots of uh, reasons why um, 
there are other alternative technologies that perhaps don't use some of those more difficult or you know um, unsavory not unsavory materials, but you know difficult to find materials. Um, there's you know perhaps batteries that have alternative chemistries are um, you know are going to be the way forward. Uh, but for the meantime, at least, it seems like the the economies of scale and the supply chains are definitely leaning towards lithium. And when you look around the installations of, of household batteries and, and vehicles, drones, lithium is the go-to. Um, I, I just saw a story from uh, the Tesla Powerwall customer from Sydney has been on the, their Powerwall and solar combo for four years now and is paying 46 cents a day in power costs. Um, that, that seems pretty attractive, I think, to a lot of of retail trades how sustainable do you think the model is of, of everybody having a solar cell and battery combo in australia yeah absolutely i mean that's a really exciting um piece of uh sort of you know news that came out and um seeing that that's that is becoming more and more prevalent uh in australia particularly in australia so um you know there's something like 2.1 million solar pv installations throughout australia which is a huge amount in some suburbs it's above 50 percent penetration so every second house has solar panels on the roof and you know that's been going on for a number of years now the, the installations of those and early you know in the early days um you could get a lot of money for selling power back to the grid but now you know because um the you know for a number of different factors one of them being that you know our original power grid was built uh, in a way that you had generators and that flowed down to substations and that flowed down to customers and so on and so forth, um, you know, sort of in a star arrangement. And now we're, you know, looking at, you know, this guy selling power back to the grid and his neighbour selling power back to the grid and someone else buying from the grid. And, you know, it's a much more decentralised and sort of um, you know, free-for-all situation now that the grid really wasn't designed to handle in, in the early days. Um, and so, you know, consequences of that are that, you know, there's limitations in how much power you can actually sell to the grid and there's a lot less um, financial incentive to selling power, just directly selling power back to the grid at the moment. So the idea of putting in your own battery, um, not only from a from an idea of energy resilience, from the idea of being able to actually take control of, you know, where your energy comes from, you store it, you, you use your own energy as opposed to, you know... And so if there's a blackout or something similar, you've got your stockpile. Absolutely, that's one thing that's um, certainly very attractive in that, um, for that, in that instance. Um, but also just being able to, you know, keep... Um, you know, to, to be able to be self-sufficient and, and it's becoming a lot more economically viable now for people who have solar panels on their roof. They're not getting any, you know, sort of feed-in tariff or getting any money for selling it back to the grid. So what do they do with it? Well, you can put in a battery and uh, then, you know, you Use make it, it your own. Or later in the day, the next day when it's raining. Absolutely. I mean, that's the big thing, that solar panels are generating power when you're at work, um, you know, if you're on your residential um, you know, on your house, then it's generating when you're at work, and you know, you get home, you turn the kettle on, you you know, you start to make dinner, and the solar panels either, you know, at the very end of the day, they're working, you know, generating a little bit of power, or you know, in winter, it's it's night time, so you don't get the benefit of having that power, having those solar panels on the roof while you want to use it to make your dinner. No, no uh, breakthroughs in moon power on the horizon. Well, I was actually reading a really interesting um, sort of speculative paper the other day that was talking about, you know, what sort of, um, you know, how you could actually make solar panels work, you know, round the clock. And, it, you know, it's... We're joking, of course. Uh, well, no, th there is actually a paper that was talking about that. But, yes, I think the, the efficiency that you would get out of that would be, uh, would be pretty pitiful. So, so you might be able to turn an LED on and that's about it. So, I mean, let's talk about a few of the ways that... that companies and scientists are trying to uh, integrate 
energy storage at a grid scale. You know, on, on batteries, there was the large battery installation put in in South Australia um, there, but there's also other technologies that are very interesting and promising. So pumped hydro, and particularly in Australia, we've got the Snowy Hydro 2.0 scheme. What can you tell us about that approach? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, I guess the, the, the overarching thing to keep in mind here is energy is, or electricity is one of the um, sort of the largest commodity markets in the world that doesn't have storage. So you think about, you know, petrol or, you know, like petroleum, then, you know, you have stockpiles um, all around the place. You've got these big tanks, you know, at ports and those sorts of things where you can actually store up that and, um, you know, store up that resource and be able to um, make a much more steady flow of, of the product and, you know, be a bit more, um, yeah, steady with how you actually use that. But energy, it, you know, or electricity, if you generate it, you know, then you can't store it anyway. You've got to use it. Otherwise, you know, that's it. Um, so it's really interesting that that has been going on for so long. And as I was saying before, it's because you had those large-scale generators that were able to ramp up and ramp down um, in response to the... Um, to the needs of the grid but now um, you know looking at generators that can't be ramped up and down like that like solar panels that you know when the sun's shining they're working when the sun's not shining they're not uh, wind power when the wind's blowing they're working and when they're not when the wind's not blowing then you know you aren't generating then having this idea of uh, you know having storage to try and um, smooth that out a, a little bit at a grid scale um, that's largely what the the energy storage is used for so you know the hornsdale battery down in south australia is not used as a backup battery as a ups as something that will allow the entire state of um, south australia to run for hours and hours and end on uh, battery but much more well one of the functions that it does is um, to sort of smooth out the output of that um, renewable energy generation source that it's um, so it's right next to a wind power um, farm and it's used to uh, to sort of smooth out one of the uses is to smooth out the output of that so um, yeah so I mean there's lots of different technologies that are um, available in that space now so things like pumped hydro as you were talking about in Australia is actually um, quite good uh, you know, there's a number of different sites uh, available around Australia, and um, there's a there's a uh, proponent of uh, so of um, pumped hydro down in ANU. Uh, I think his name's Professor Andrew Blakely, uh, and he um, you know, has run some numbers that say that you know, something like 97% of Australia's um, energy needs could be covered with renewable energy and uh, pumped hydro. I think so. Um, there's certainly a lot of scope for that. You need very specific. Um, you know geological um, you know, situation so you, you basically um, the 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 way that it works is that you have a, a high a high tank or a high reservoir or a high lake and a low lake and you allow water to flow from the high one to the low one through a turbine to generate power when you need it and then when you've got excess power you use that turbine in reverse and you pump power from the low up to the top so um yeah, in, in Australia, we're obviously a pretty flat continent, so we've, we've got limited opportunities for that. But the, the Snowy Hydro scheme and the, the Snowy Mountains is definitely one of those places. So what they're proposing with Snowy Hydro 2.0 is to, to pump between two of the existing reservoirs that were initially just built for for the flow out and the, the hydroelectricity, but that's uh, Tentangara and Talbingo dams, and they're drilling between them essentially to, to build one of these reversible flow channels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there um, that that's quite an interesting, um, you know, an interesting project, and that's I think one part of the mix for you know transitioning to a 
um, you know, a renewable energy or a low carbon um, grid. There's, I think, um, one of the things that is a bit of a, you know, these technologies all need to work in towards, you know, need to work in together. There's not a single um, silver bullet that will, you know, you can't just say, all right, batteries will do everything that we need. Um, you know, there's lots of different um, technologies that are fantastic for one application and completely unsuited for another application. So, you know, a mix of all of these different energy storage and also renewable energy generation technologies is really what we need in order to, um, you know, to meet the needs of the of the grid and also move to sort of the low carbon um, emissions targets that we're looking at. Well, speaking of that kind of targeted applications, let's talk about a few of the more niche types of energy storage that are around there's there's flywheels which is probably an old technology finding a new life essentially just spinning up a wheel very quickly a heavy wheel that can then store energy that way um i know they're on use in use on board aircraft carriers what what makes them different and unique there's actually a really interesting uh, application of that out in uh, a place called marble bar in western australia so i think um and don't quote me on this but i think it has the record for the highest number of hottest days in Australia. Um, so just an amazingly um, isolated and very, very hot place. And what they have out there, it's, it's a small community. I think it's about 200 people. And they have uh, diesel generators. Uh, well, they were, they were on diesel generation. Um, they installed solar panels. But what, um, what they had issues with was, um, you know, when a, when a cloud moved over the solar panels, they would suddenly have a massive drop in the um, generation, the power generation. And so these diesel generators were having to sit there and basically play the inverse of what the solar generators were doing. So diesel generators like to sit there and, and generate power at a very constant, very steady rate, just ticking away. Um, and having to ramp up and down was really, really causing a lot of um, issues in terms of maintenance um, of these. And so a flywheel is a really interesting um, technology because you can um, basically go from fully charging to fully discharging in milliseconds. So you can go from you know dumping energy into it to pulling it out um, very, very, very quickly. It's not a, um, you know, not a, a very energy-dense energy storage mechanism, but the fact that you can switch between this charging and discharging very, very quickly means that you can um, smooth out that solar output and then put a lot less um, stress on those diesel generators. So again, you know, because they have these diesel generators in this, uh, you know, in this particular community, they don't need long-term energy storage like a battery. What they need is that smoothing um, capability, and that's why a flywheel in this instance was a much. Well, that was the best technology for that particular application. Yeah, and the ability to kind of pump energy in and out of flywheels quickly. I think they're also used in regenerative braking applications. The New York subway has flywheels on it to to stop and start the trains, which is you know they've been around since the 1930s. Absolutely, it's. I mean, none of these t the applications and perhaps the implementation of a lot of these technologies. So you know, electrochemical um, energy storage has been around since I think the late seventeen hundreds with, you know, Volta and his voltaic pile and those sorts of things. So, um, but the, you know, Galbani torturing frogs. Absolutely. So, um, but the specific technology or the specific implementation, you know, these are the new things and the new ways that we're looking at sort of developing and, and deploying these technologies for applications like flywheels, for applications um, like residential energy storage, for applications like, you know, um, grid scale batteries as well. So an, another niche technology is, is compressed air storage, where you, you're literally just pumping the atmosphere into some pressurised chamber and, and letting it out again. That's, a, that's one that doesn't get much airtime. 
I love the pun there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, that's there's two commercially operating um, systems of those in the world. There's one in uh, Germany and one in America, and there, um, you know, that's a really really interesting technology um, in terms of being able to store a lot of energy, uh, you know, and sort of very high powers and very high energy storage, you know, in the megawatts and megawatt hour um, range. But um, you need very specific. Again, you need basically a, a geological um, uh, you know, like a cave or a, a, an old mine or something like that that you can actually use to pump that um, air in and out of. So you need a very specific site in order to be able to um, to use that compressed air technology. Um, and it's having a bit of a renaissance. So there's a, a, a Chinese um, project that's, I think, off the ground now to, to deploy compressed air energy storage um, over there as well. And that, that should be very interesting to see. And again, I think that underscores the fact that you know, people are, or, you know, companies and, and utilities and um, everyone's sort of recognising that there's no one solution and, you know, all of these different technologies have a role to play um, for specific applications. All right, well, let, let's get on to the kind of the last bit of this puzzle, which you definitely touched on, which was, you know, how this interacts with the grid as a system. And, you know, like you said, the the, the grids were in the, in the developed world, at least, were were built around this concept of having single generation sources and that being a one way channel out to homes. Um, and now we're talking about microgrids and kind of setting up smaller self sufficient units, or or at least being able to have two way flows of power between those you know, renewable energy sources and homes and all of these storage facilities. What's the approach from a grid management perspective? Well, I think they need to be, um, you know, and they are being very um, pragmatic about these sorts of things. I mean, the um, one of the things that I think absolutely blows my mind is the fact that any time I walk into a room, at some fantastic level of, you know, reliability, I switch the light on and it works. And I think that, you know, we take that for granted perhaps, um, you know, the fact that all of this infrastructure or, you know, there are people who dedicate their entire lives to making sure that that works for me. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing that that happens. And the only reason that that happens is because there's very, very, very smart people and um, looking at how they can keep those sorts of, um, you know, technologies going, you know, keep, keep the grid going and keep it as completely transparent to me and to every other consumer as possible. Um, and so... You know, they have, so, you know, these grid operators and, you know, network companies have sort of a, a dual, um, you know, two competing interests in that they need to, you know, you know, people are putting solar panels on their roofs and there's nothing you can do to stop that. Um, but they also need to keep the reliability and the, um, you know, they need to keep the lights on for everyone, regardless of what um, is going on here. So they're being, a lot of them are being very... Um, innovative in how they start to interact with this and what technologies they start they're starting to use and the way that they're really um, embracing you know renewable energy and and how that can be you know renewable energy from people putting solar panels on their roofs all the way up to you know massive solar farms and and how they sort of fit into the grid and the um, you know the Australian um, uh, grid operator as well as you know AEMO the um, who runs the NEM the the electrical grid that is basically all of the eastern um, side of Australia they're being quite uh, forward thinking in how um, we start to you know really take advantage of putting renewables into the grid and, and make sure that we don't lose reliability um, while sort of bringing those things online as well and so I guess as a final point this has obviously got a really interesting way of integrating with the third world where there really is 
no established grid in a lot of cases. You're, you're talking about kind of leapfrogging out instead of having these coal-fired power plants and established grids, you go straight to the microgrid model. Um, how, how can it be applied in those kind of circumstances where you, you're not leaning on that historical backbone? Well, I think that's really interesting. And a good uh, parallel there is mobile phones. So, you know, in a lot of these developing uh, countries, you know, they didn't worry about, you know, rolling out landlines. Everyone's got a mobile phone because the infrastructure to do that is much easier than, you know, putting copper lines into, you know, putting copper lines around everywhere. You can have a mobile tower instead. And, and as you say, leapfrog that technology that, that perhaps other um, countries went through. So, I mean, there's a good parallel there. And there is a lot of uh, interest and a lot of work on microgrids in communities as well, um, you know, all around Africa and all around um, the developing world as well. So, I mean, it, it makes sense and the technology is available now that we can, you know, do a very, very um, modularised, you know, solar panel, battery, diesel backup, you know, all in a 40-foot container. And there's lots of startup companies and even established companies out there that are doing those um, sorts of technologies now. Um, and I think that that particularly with lithium-ion batteries, the, you know, the, the time has come now where that, that's an enabling technology that will allow a lot more of those sorts of ideas and a lot more of really passionate people who are, who are interested in, in helping, um, you know, bring stable safe uh, and reliable energy to to people all around the world that it'll really allow them to to do that and to build on those sorts of technologies there oh incredible that's a good inspiring note to wrap up this episode on so thank you very much john Knott, for joining us on the podcast thanks for having me leo really appreciate it well that's all the science we can fit into lab notes this week we hope you enjoyed it if you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.